Welcome to this Kessler Foundation podcast. The Foundation is a global leader in rehabilitation research that seeks to improve cognition, mobility, and long-term outcomes for individuals with disabilities by testing new interventions and gathering data that may be used in treatment to restore function and help people living with disabilities improve quality of life. In addition, the Foundation Center for Grant Making leads the nation in funding programs that expand employment opportunities for people with disabilities in New Jersey and the nation. In this episode, we're talking with Dr. Helen Genova. She is the Assistant Director of the Center for Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Research at Kessler Foundation. She spoke with Rob Gerth, the Foundation's Communications Director. So you know where I want to start. Are you from New Jersey? That's where I want to start. And I have a reason. Go ahead. Yes, absolutely. I'm from Jersey, born and raised. And proud, I and can proud, tell. And proud, very proud. I love Jersey. <laughs> never going to leave. I asked because you went to Seton Hall and you went yes. to Rutgers. Yep. And so there was never a thought like, I'm going to go to Wyoming and go no, to... No, no. I actually only, when it came time to apply to college, I only applied to Seton Hall. My parents both <gasps> went there. They met there. So I said, there's where I'm going. And, and so... Fortunately, I got it. I was going to say, <laughs> you were a legacy maybe, and that helped. <laughs> yeah. So was, speaking of your family, was there anybody in your family that you, you ended up in science? Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about how you got there in a sure. second. But did is there? Did, how did that happen? How did you end up in science? Actually, there yeah, there's nobody else in my family who is a scientist. Um, we have, you know, a lawyer. We have other, other professions. But um, it just was something that I became interested in. I always enjoyed it growing up. And um, while I was in college, I really started to feel like that was the place where I needed to be. Wow, that's funny. Did you go into college like, like as knowing where you kind of wanted to go? Like you had an idea or were you just liberal arts? Actually, <clears throat> so I went into college thinking initially that I would be a psychiatrist. That was, I, I went in as pre-med. And oh, wow. um, that's mostly because I've just always been fascinated by the brain, particularly like what what happens when things in the brain go wrong. That was always something that fascinated me. And so I studied a lot of abnormal psychology and those kinds of classes and clinical disorders and depression and anxiety. And so I just thought I'd eventually be a physician who treated those um, those problems. But uh, somewhere along the line, I became more interested in doing the research, probably because I like the idea of being able to test new hypotheses, and then maybe that the results would be applied by physicians, as opposed to me just treating the disorder. I right. thought it would be cool to actually have a hand in discovering more about it and making, you know, new interventions. And, and so fixing it, you want to fix it. Exactly. It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, no, I get that. So let me ask this, though. And so the whole STEM world, yeah. right? So science, technology, engineering, math, yeah, is known for not really including. Like women have a hard. It's it, it seems to be a hard time for women to get in, get involved in that Absolutely. for whatever reason. Sure. What's your experience with that as a, as a woman growing up? Yeah. I I um I think it's very interesting. I think that in society, without even realizing it, we sort of push boys and girls into these roles. And I think that there's been a number of studies done which have shown that teachers, without even knowing it or realizing it, will tend to push their male students into 
the more STEM-based subjects, and they'll tend to not encourage girls to do the same. So there have been studies showing that teachers tend to call on boys more than girls in subjects like math and science. And um, <clears throat> I just read this study that showed that if you if a girl hands in a test and her name is removed so that you don't know what gender she is, right. she actually would score higher in no. a, on a math test than if the teacher knew that she was a female. She would actually score her lower. So it's really, it's really interesting how I think that just we as a society tend to envision that girls should be in certain subjects and boys need to be in the math and sciences. Fortunately... Um, my parents actually encouraged me. <laughs> I was going to ask yeah, if you yeah, give your they, parents credit. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they encouraged me to go to an all-girls school. Um, so I went oh. to, uh, yeah, the St. Elizabeth's Academy in Convent Station, New Jersey. And that was a really wonderful experience because there was no bias towards, you know, encouraging the boys more versus the girls. Right. It forced the girls to have a voice and to exceed in whatever subject they wanted to and not have to worry about um, coming behind a boy in class or, or not getting the opportunities that the boys were given. We just got to choose what we wanted to exceed in. So, Now, I wonder if anybody's done a study on that. Like, women that have gone to all-girls schools, are they more... Are there, is there a higher percentage of them involved in STEM or not? That's a really good question. I don't know. Um, one thing I will say is that I went back to um, my high school uh, last year to speak at Founders Day, right. and I got to see some of my classmates and and what came of them, and they were all really successful professional women, not necessarily in STEM, but um, just just above and beyond in terms of their success and, and professions. So that was really exciting to see. Yeah, that's cool. If you want to work on that study, you can have that. I give that to you. Okay, that's, awesome. That's Thank yours you. To do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Seton Hall, tell me about that. So your your parents obviously. Uh, influenced you a little bit mm-hmm. um so what was why why psychology again why was that um again i was just interested in the brain and um growing up just just becoming fascinated by why people act the way that they act and and is there something that happens in the brain that makes one person act one way and another person act a completely different way even though for example they were raised in the same household so i was just really fascinated by why and how the brain influences behavior. And that was really why I studied psychology at Seton Hall. But I always felt like there was a little something missing. I wanted the science aspect of it. And so at the same time, I was taking a lot of science classes. And in my senior year, I decided to um, combine science and psychology and really focus on neuroscience. So that was when I I started to look into applying to graduate schools and uh, looking into becoming a scientist in that field. It's it's interesting because it's not the first time I've heard this story from someone in your position where they started out studying psychology and then got so involved they wanted to go to the neuroscience. I wonder what it is about you uh, you scientists, you yeah, researchers. I don't know. I, I think maybe there's the um, wanting to look at the mechanisms in the brain as opposed to, you know, psychology, you're studying behavior, you're, stutter- you're studying the phenomenon, but... To study neuroscience, you're looking at what specifically is happening in the brain that causes the things that we see in psychology. 
So then at Rutgers, what was your focus? Did you have a focus there? Yes. So I started, um, I went into the neuroscience program at Rutgers, and I focused on cognitive neuroscience. So I was looking at neuroimaging of clinical populations, such as multiple sclerosis and traumatic brain injury. And all my work was done um, under the mentorship of uh, John DeLuca. Oh, yeah. Now, was that before he was a senior VP yes. of research and training here? Yes, absolutely. So in graduate school, um, John was actually my advisor. So he was he was the director of the neuropsychology and neuroscience lab. And I at Rutgers at um, at Kessler. Oh, at Kessler. Okay. Yep. And then I I was given the choice of which professors I wanted to work with most closely. And I approached John and, and just said I was really interested in his research and could I work with him. So he took me on and he became my advisor throughout grad school. So that was really cool. And I guess he was your chief mentor then. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Was there anybody else that influenced you at that point? Um, yeah, I think there was one other person that I would say had a real influence on my wanting to become a scientist. And that was back when I was at Seton Hall. There was a professor there uh, named Dr. Matthew Petersheim, and he was my chemistry professor. Mm. And it's interesting because when you're a uh biology major or chem major, the most intimidating class is organic chemistry. And everybody is terrified of this class. Nobody wants to take it. Even communication majors are terrified of that class, <laughs> oh, even though yeah. they're never oh, going to yeah. take it. They're like, ah, exactly. I don't want to get anywhere near <laughs> yeah. that book. You just look at the book. You and look go, at the book and you get scared. That's crazy. Exactly. So he was my professor in that class as well as other classes. But uh, he just approached science with such a passion and a joy and an enthusiasm and he was so supportive and he actually um at seton hall he started a scientific conference that had never existed before he got there so he he told the directors of seton hall you know i think it's important that science be put at the forefront of what we're doing here so he formed this scientific conference that was going to be held annually and i actually presented at it uh, when i was at seton hall and i just recently went back as a mentor and um, I had a student who was presenting her research at the exi- exhibition. It's called the Petersheim Exhibition because, sadly, he passed away mm. while I was at Seton Hall. Yeah, so it was a real real loss for the community. But wow. So so you've uh, taken up the mentorship reins then. Yes. I guess. You're, yeah. You're, you're doing that now. You're That has been one of the most rewarding parts of being a scientist, I think, is, is mentoring the next generation of scientists coming up. And that has been so exciting. Um, to, to take the skills that I've learned as a student and then and help other people achieve those skills has been really rewarding. And I guess other than the emotional satisfaction of helping somebody, I guess you get something out of it because the young folks, <laughs> they bring something to the table Absolutely. too, Absolutely. Right? Well, they have a lot of energy. They have a lot of <laughs> new ideas and um, a lot of skills that they're learning and, and they're innovative and they're creative and so I really, I love that aspect of my job is working with the younger generation and seeing what they can bring to the table. And here we do a lot of that. I mean, there are a lot of oh, yeah. uh, RAs that are involved in our research. There's a huge percentage of our employees are. Absolutely. Our research assistants, we have interns, and then also our postdoctoral fellows have been, uh, all, all of them are amazing. So how did you, since we're talking about Kessler Foundation, how did you end up at Kessler Foundation? I'm sure it has something to do with John DeLuca. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so John, um, after we, after I graduated, um, I was really sad to think that I could just 
stop that line of research that he and I were um, doing together. I really wanted to continue to study individuals with multiple sclerosis and um, and also to continue to learn from John because he was a huge influence. He was always pushing me to be um, to be better, to, to, to step outside my comfort zone, to be braver as a scientist. So um, I really wanted to continue to work with him. So after graduating, I just asked him if there was something that I could do at Kessler, and he he and uh, Nancy Cervalotti offered me a position. So I started working as a research associate, and and the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) As they say. Yes. So you do a lot of work studying uh, cognitive issues. Yes. In in patients and subjects, Mm -hmm. Um, especially around the topic of MS and multiple sclerosis. Uh, first, de- define what that means, cognitive issues. What are, you, what are you looking at? Sure. So cognition is literally any process that's going on in your brain that helps you think, make decisions, do things. So, for example, if you are reading the newspaper, it's a cognitive process. If you're deciding whether you're going to have turkey or chicken for dinner, that's a cognitive process. So literally anything you do during the day that involves thinking um, is a cognitive issue. And people with MS tend to have... Um, certain cognitive problems. So slowed thinking, uh, they'll tell you, I just don't think as quickly as I used to. Um, Things seem to be sort of slow for me. Um, Executive functioning problems, so having trouble with um, deciding between one thing to do versus another, um, trying to inhibit something that they, they should be inhibiting. And um, in attention, memory, so all of these problems seem to be impacted by multiple sclerosis. And we don't know why. Well, we do know that um, it's due to neuropathology. I think that there's a lot of issues concerning the white matter tracts in the brain just being attacked by the immune system. And so that is definitely a contributor, but I don't think we have a full understanding of um, why they experience the deficits that they have. And then... Uh... What is, tell me if I'm asking or repeating the question, but social cognition, what is, is that a different yes. piece of this? Go ahead. Tell yes, me about so that. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so social cognition are the mental processes having to do with navigating your social world. So right now you and I are talking and if I were to smile at you, you would smile back. If I were to shake my head no at you or look upset, then you would respond appropriately. So it's literally any type of process in the brain having to do with your interactions with someone else. It can be understanding the emotions on somebody's face. So if you walk into a restaurant and you see your friend is waiting for you at dinner and and they're looking angrily at their watch and looking back at you, you might say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late, you know. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's also understanding the beliefs and the thoughts of other people. So for example, if somebody, let's say you stepped on someone's foot and they said, oh, gee, thanks. You're you know, because you understand what they're feeling, that they're not truly thanking you. That's their way of being sarcastic. Um, But that is actually a skill that can be impaired in people with MS um, in terms of understanding other people's emotions or what other people are truly feeling. That is something that can be impaired in MS and other clinical disorders. So that's the area that I really focus on now is social cognition. And is, is that called social blindness or emotional you know, blindness? Or? Emotional blindness is a term that um, people have started using describing this research. I don't actually love the term because I think that people with MS, it's not that they can't identify the emotions of others. It's not that they 
can't understand the beliefs and the feelings of others. I think that it may take them longer, and I think they they may find it more difficult. But I don't think that they are, quote unquote, blind. Um, So I think it's something where we have to study it in a bit more of a nuanced way. It's not a yes or no. It's not like they don't know when people are sad. Of course they do. But it may take them longer to understand if someone is sad. Yeah, and words are important to me. I mean, absolutely. you call something, if you put a term on something, um, sometimes that slants not just how people react to you, but even slants the research you're doing. Absolutely. And I think, too, it's it's important to be be accurate because I think – when people hear the term emotional blindness, they get a sense of what that looks like. Right. And they may envision somebody who just totally is unaware of other people's feelings. And and that's just not the case in MS. I think it's way, it's not a black or white. It's a way more of a uh, gray area that we're, that we're studying. So with this giant gray area in front of us, sure. how do you study? Like, how do you even think of a way to determine... Because I guess you're trying to get at the root cause. Sure. So how do you, what what path do you go down? And, t- and you can talk about some of the recent work that you've been doing. Too. Absolutely. So um, so we have a variety of tests that we use. So we've been using there are some paper and pencil or some computerized measures where you have a participant come in, they sit down in front of a computer, they look at a picture of a face that's showing an emotion, and you ask them which of these emotions is that person displaying. So that's a really easy way of of going about it um i don't know how applicable that is to real life um skills so there are other tests that you can use we have uh tests that have them looking at videos of actors talking and then they have to identify what the feelings are of those actors Mm. that's a little bit more real life um so those are the measures that we use generally is either pictures or videos of actors showing an emotion and then asking people with MS or TBI to tell us what they feel those people are feeling. Now, I've done some interviews about uh, spatial neglect. And the question I asked is, do people with spatial neglect know they have spatial neglect? And the answer is not necessarily. Right. uh, So I'll ask you the same question. Do people with these cognitive issues, do they know they have them? Or, Or can you tell them they have them? And they'll be like, oh, I get it. That's a very good question, and I don't think the answer is all that clear. I don't, <laughs> unfor- I, you know, I don't think that anybody walks around with the awareness that they're not understanding other people's emotions. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that that's a thing. I think that they may be experiencing interpersonal issues. So, for example, somebody with MS may feel like they're not um, connecting with their friends anymore. Maybe they're having difficulty with their significant other. Um, but I don't think that they quite understand why that would be. And maybe it's possible um, that social cognition problems are at the root of those issues that they're experiencing. We don't have research yet to show that, but those are the sorts of things that we are studying is what are the um, what are the downstream effects of social cognition problems in MS? Are they causing problems with significant others? Are they causing problems with friendships and social networks? Those are all things that we're looking at. So you could potentially be in a position of, oh, I just got diagnosed with MS, and my whole life seems to be falling apart, but it might not just be because you were diagnosed with MS. It could be because of some of the things the MS is doing to you, and you're not even realizing. You're just thinking, 
my life has really gotten crappy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of, unfortunately, the cognitive issues in MS can have an extreme impact on um, the lives of the people who have this disorder. And um, we just actually published a paper that shows that people with social cognition problems also report greater levels of depression, greater levels of anxiety, and um, greater levels of fatigue related to being with other people. So not just physical fatigue, but um, fatigue that you would experience being around others. And so there seems to be a link between people who may have trouble, for example, identifying emotions from faces and depression. We don't know. It's sort of like a chicken or the egg kind of a scenario. We don't know if the social cognition is causing problems with depression or if the more depressed you get, the more you have problems with social cognition. We simply don't know yet what the direction of the relationship is, but we do know that there seems to be these two, these problems are, are associated with each other. They're linked in some way. And my Bachelor of Arts degrees tells me that maybe maybe the fatigue is also coming from having their brain having to work overtime to Absolutely. try to figure out what's happening in front of them. Absolutely. I mean, if you, you know, if you went to a party and you simply had trouble connecting with everyone there, if you really felt like you weren't quite getting it, you weren't understanding, for example, if somebody told a joke and you just didn't know why it was funny, but everybody else is laughing, so what do you do? You have to pretend to laugh or <laughs> or maybe you don't. After a while, that would get tiring. Yeah. You know, you, you may start to say to yourself, well, I don't really want to go to parties anymore. I don't seem to fit in. You know, so it's possible that these problems are going to lead to even greater issues in terms of interpersonal relationships and and being integrated with other people. And then even keeping your job, I assume. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there, there. I don't think that there have been any studies looking at social cognition deficits and employment issues, but I'm sure that that plays a role. And then what about how far, a lot of the people I've talked to since I started doing these podcasts, we're like, we're over here. And it's like, but this also applies over here too. So talk yeah. to me about some other places where your research might apply, whether it's traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury. Or- sure, yeah. So we actually, um, these social cognition problems, we look at them in traumatic brain injury as well. Um, a lot of people with traumatic brain injury experience these issues. Um, if you talk to a caregiver or a significant other, um, of a person with traumatic brain injury, and you ask them, you know, what what kinds of problems are you and your um, and and the person you care for? What are you guys facing? A lot of them will start to talk about things, and although they don't label them social cognition problems, the words that they're using indicate that that is the case. So, for example, they'll say, "I don't know, you know, my husband has no empathy anymore. I, I'll come in, I'll tell him I'm having a horrible day, and he just doesn't seem to care." He just stares at me. Um, or if you, you know, you'll have a husband say, my wife, I'm, I'm, I'm literally crying in front of her and she's just staring right through me. It's like she doesn't even get it. So they don't know why these things are happening, but it's possible that the person who has a traumatic brain injury simply is just not understanding the social cues that the other person is giving off. Mm-hmm. And since we moved into other subjects. Tell me, if, I know you do some work around autism. Yeah. Tell me tell me a little bit about that. And what got you interested in that? Sure. Well, you know, we, um, Kessler Foundation recently partnered with Children's Specialized Hospital, and that gave us the opportunity to take what we're learning in adults and then go study them in pediatric samples. So autism is a population that I was really interested in, um, particularly because one of the defining characteristics of this disorder 
are social cognition issues. Mm -hmm. They do have a lot of problems in the social domain, whether it's, um, you know, understanding other people, whether it's acting appropriately in social situations, picking up on social cues that other people are giving off. Um, it is just something that people with autism tend to have difficulty with. So it was a pretty easy um, movement from my work in MS and TBI into the autism world. It was like a pretty easy transition. Um, so that's how I got interested in that population. So tell me about some of the work that you're doing then. Sure. So um, we recently got a grant funded um, by the Governor's Council of New Jersey and it is to apply a virtual reality intervention to improve job interview skills in in adolescents with autism. So the really exciting thing about that is kids with autism can have so much to offer um, society. I mean, they're smart kids. They can have talents, skills, et cetera, all these things that they can offer a place of employment. The problem is because of their social difficulties, they may never get in the door. And a lot of that happens at the first step, which is the job interview. Mm -hmm. So when you go into a job interview, you have to know how to sell yourself. You have to be polite. You have to be socially appropriate. Um, you can't come in and, you know, if, if you say to somebody, so tell me about yourself, you can't give an answer like, well, I had an argument with my mom this morning because I didn't let the dog out. Like you're not going to get very far on a right. job interview. So you have to know what topics are socially appropriate during a job interview, what topics to definitely stay away from. And it seems that kids with autism find the job interview particularly difficult. This is an area where um, a lot of people with autism have identified as, as a problem area for them, something that they would like to improve in. So what I did was I partnered with um, some, some scientists at the University of Michigan who had developed a virtual reality intervention called the Virtual Reality Job Interview Tool. And that project was actually funded initially by Kessler Foundation. And um, we paired together, this tool has been used in adults with autism and adults with psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia. And it's shown to be really effective in improving job interview skills. So what we decided to do was take it, use it in a school system. So we actually went into a school system we um, we gave it to a group of teenagers, and we looked at um, whether or not it was effective in improving job interview skills. And uh, our initial findings show that it is very effective. So that is really exciting. Um, I'm really excited about getting that work uh, published. And then we have a follow-up study, like I said, that was funded by the Governor's Council to get a larger group of kids. We're going to look uh, across different school systems. So not just looking in one school, but looking across multiple schools in New Jersey. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to continue with that research. So the kids, you would have, you would put them through the training. Yes. And at the other end of the training, you would evaluate them like a before and after you do yeah so what we do is we we actually do a mock job interview mm -hmm. where we um we have one of our staff members sit down with them ask them questions as if they're really on a job interview and we record that and then we um do that after the intervention to see if people have improved uh pre to post so normally i would assume this kind of training would happen with role play 
Sure. So explain to me like what the virtual reality piece of it is. Like what does that look like? Do you actually put goggles on? Do they So we don't put goggles on, but you're right. Role playing has always been sort of the gold standard to help people prepare for job interviews. Um, I know that I've even done that, you know, where I've sat down with someone that I trust and and tell them to ask me questions so I could practice answering them. Um, It is certainly effective, but it is expensive if you're doing it with, for example, a therapist, because some therapists would be willing to do that with you. Um, It can take up a lot of time. And also there's a certain amount of bias that occurs in that, let's say you were role playing with your mom right? She's not going to be hard on you, right? You're <laughs> you don't probably, know my mom. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're interviewing with your mom, you're probably going to get the job. So um, so what, what virtual reality does is it allows these students to practice job interviews with a virtual human who doesn't take it easy on them. They actually uh, have different personality types where they could come into an interview and be sort of grumpy and ask really hard questions. Um, They may look disappointed in your answers. You may get a virtual human on one day that seems very sweet and and is very nice. So the, the wonderful thing about this intervention is you're really getting a variety of experiences and you don't have to hire a therapist. You don't have to bother your mom. You don't even have to ask a teacher. It's all just being done between the student and the virtual human, which is part of the virtual reality program. There are no goggles, um, which actually is a bonus because as you know, kids with autism can have sensory issues. Mm -hmm. So the goggles may bother them, may make them nauseous. So this is actually, they're just looking at a screen and it it almost looks like a Skype interview where you were interviewing somebody who was in another location. But the kids really feel like they're interviewing with a person. Yeah. It really, they do sort of become immersed in the experience. So it's really, really neat. And does the interviewer wait for answers? Like, how does that part work? Yeah. So, so with this particular program, um, they ask questions and then the students are given a variety of answers to choose from, ranging from completely socially inappropriate to really appropriate. So, for example, the interviewer might say to you, I noticed you were late today. What happened? And the possible answers range from, eh, I couldn't get out of bed, right? Which is not the right answer (laughs) to, um, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that uh, the address was in this town. So I I got a little confused, but I, I, after I realized I was on my way and I could find it. So it's okay in an interview to admit to wrongdoing, but there's a way that you do it in a way that sells yourself, right. you know, and makes you look as if you are uh, responsible, you're going to be great to work with, you're honest. So, um, so yeah, so, so they give them a range of responses and the kids learn very quickly what are the good responses to give and what responses don't get such a good outcome. Because I would assume the interviewer has a response based yes. on what the person that's training Absolutely. They do get feedback and um, they they have a little actually, uh, they have the interviewer who will get grumpy if the answers are not appropriate. (laughs) But then they also have a little job coach, which uh, gives them a thumbs up or a thumbs down and will give them feedback like, yay, that was a great answer because you sounded honest and productive. Or that's not such a great answer because you sounded like you you were not dependable. So they're learning quite a bit. A lot of different um, skill sets, how to sound honest, team player, productive, et cetera. And right now you're gathering data to see if it's effective. And then I I assume you would roll it out at some point. You said you're going to expand it to other schools for part of your testing. Yes. What would would be the ultimate 
Like what's the uh, think, end use? Yeah, so the ultimate goal, I think, is to get the results out there so that school systems, for example, know that they can begin to put it into their curriculum. You know, a lot of schools, especially for children with special needs, may have transitional programs where they're training kids how to go out into the job market. So this could be definitely one aspect of their education, could be training with this this program. Um, so that's definitely one end goal. Um, you can also access this program privately. It's the kind of thing where you could log into the internet and and um, and to buy a license and and to practice at your own comfort level. So um, I think the point of the research is just to show it's not something we think will be helpful. The research is showing, guess it is helpful. So. And where do you think uh, the whole virtual reality thing is going to take you? You're you're kind of in, in the forefront. With yeah, this. I, I, yeah, I really love the virtual reality stuff. I think what's really wonderful about virtual reality is, as a scientist, we use a lot of tests, and the tests are sometimes they're paper and pencil tests, sometimes they're computer tests. Most of the time, they're laboratory tests, meaning we have no idea how they translate into real life. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you tell me you're having problem with your memory and I say to you, okay, I'm gonna give you a laboratory test. Remember these 10 words, and dog, horse, orange, apple, and then I ask you to recall it and you have a problem. So that's interesting to know, but we don't actually know if that means you're going to have problems later when your uh, child says to you, mom, I have these three things to do for homework and I have to pick up tissues for my teacher. And I, you know, so you get a list of things that you have to accomplish in the evening. Do you have problems there too? We're not sure how those two things translate. So virtual reality actually puts you in a real world like environment, but it's, it's helpful from a scientific point of view because it's very highly controlled. We can control what aspects of it that we want to control. So it's not totally real life, but it is mimics real life so that the person feels as if they're doing something that's more like what they would do in a, in a day-to-day situation. Yeah, because I, I would assume that trying to do your get through your daily life in a laboratory and not having any of the stresses of the dog barking exactly. or, yeah, is, yeah. is a little bit different than out in the world. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, so virtual reality is really wonderful in that you can control the environment, but then also make it look like real life to the, to the participant. So what do you think uh, technology-wise, uh, virtual reality we talked about, mm-hmm. but what, what other technologies are you seeing in, in the future? So, um, you know, at my training, I was, I was trained to be a cognitive neuroscientist. So one of the things that I did was uh, learn how to use neuroimaging. So functional magnetic resonance imaging, um, diffusion tensor imaging, all of these tools which help you look at different things in the brain. So for example, fMRI enables you to see what parts of the brain are active when someone's doing a certain task or when someone is thinking about a certain thing. Um, Diffusion tensor imaging is is the same sort of thing. It's done in the um, MRI magnet, but it looks at what types of um, brain damage we're seeing to the white matter tracts of the brain. So I would love to combine neuroimaging with some of the interventions that we're doing to see what happens in the brain after you give someone an intervention. So for example, as a student becomes more confident in job interviewing, do you see 
not only a change in their behavior, but also in the brain. Mm -hmm. Have we been able to somehow change the brain and have more long-lasting effects, something that um, will last them for, you know, hopefully the rest of their life? Um, So I think those are the sorts of questions we can answer with neuroimaging. So I'm really excited about that part, too. And is the the neuroimaging at a spot where it can keep up with that? Oh, I I, absolutely. I think that... uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff that's up and coming with neuroimaging. For example, there's machine learning you may have heard about with neuroimaging where you can actually use these brain activity measures such as fMRI or MRI, and you can predict who will benefit from an intervention. Because not every intervention is going to help every single person. But you could look at someone's brain activity at baseline and then using machine learning, you'd be able to identify, will this person benefit from an intervention? Yes or no. And that's happening now. Um, I think that's something that we could definitely start doing. Um, so that's a really innovative application of imaging. And I guess with the, I know here at Kessler, we're, at the, we're in the midst of real-time uh, yes. MRI, yes. which I guess also is going to help identify things in a faster, better, and there's my scientific words again, (laughs) faster, better way. You say it better than me. Go ahead. Sure. Well, real-time fMRI is going to allow us to look at the brain. You know, when when you typically, historically, when we used fMRI in the past, you put the person in the scanner, and then they leave the scanner, and then you analyze the data, you look at the data. So you're sort of looking at something that occurred in the past. With real-time fMRI, you're looking at the data as it's occurring. And then the cool thing is with something like neurofeedback, you are giving the participant a job that they then start to learn how to control their own brain activity. It's not, it's not something that I do, but um, it is something that I've, I've been reading a lot about. I think it's really exciting in that um, people can actually, like for example, calming yourself down. If you were having an, an, a really anxious moment, you could use neurofeedback to learn how to calm your brain down. And you would be looking at your own brain activity and actually saying, okay, what do I need to do to make this brain activity um, go lower, for example? Yeah, good. That's great. Um, what, what about, um, we, we've been throwing research subjects around like they're fish at a fish store. <laughs> um, but I assume that's a tough part of your job is getting people to volunteer yes. to get involved in the research. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's it it can be very hard um, because we are asking a lot of them, I think. You know, um, one thing I want to say is that we are so appreciative of anybody who volunteers to be in our research because we're doing this for them. We're doing this with them as our partners. So um, I, I, I truly appreciate anybody who gives up their time to um, to participate in our research. But yes, it can be difficult. Sometimes you're asking them for a considerable amount of time. You're asking them to travel. Mm-hmm. So um, all of those things are, are difficult. But I would say that it's worth it because they are helping us understand the problems that they're experiencing better. And one really, really cool place that I think research is going, more and more, we as scientists are asking the people with these problems and with these disorders, what research do they feel is meaningful? Hmm. It used to be historically research was just done to somebody with TBI and they just had to take our word for it. This right. is going to help you, you know. <laughs> but 
I think what we're doing now is we're actually asking people with TBI, is this what you want? Is this something that you feel is important? And that is really exciting. And I've seen that grow more and more in recent years that we're partnering with the people we're studying. We really want to know their feedback and what they think is important. That's cool. And of course, if you go to KesslerFoundation.org in the upper right, there's a big button in it that talks about They'll help you find what studies we have available right now, and even for healthy people. Absolutely. Uh, we need that as, as well, control studies. Um, what are you excited about right now? Like what in, your, in what you're doing or what you're reading in the other research, what makes you go, oh, yeah, that's cool. I want to keep doing this. Um, I think, you know, my, my work with all of the populations that I study with MS and TBI and autism I think anything that involves treating a deficit and seeing if people improve, that's what really makes me excited. Um, because it's not just studying a problem, it's, it's trying to fix a problem, kind of going back to- You're very to, big. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, going back to why I originally got into this. I didn't just want to study the problem, I wanted to see how we could make it better. And so for example, in autism, the thought that you have a really talented high school kid Right? So just imagine a kid in high school who is exceptionally smart, maybe has an awesome sense of humor, and would be amazing at a particular job, but he just can't seem to ace that job interview. The thought that after this intervention, he can, and he can actually go in there, sell himself, and, and have the people say, yeah, we want to hire this guy. Uh, that to me makes me so happy, the thought that we could be changing the future for these kids and allowing them to be productive citizens, allowing you know, society to value them more and to, to see what's great about them. That, that's, the, that's the part that really excites me. And what keeps you here at Kessler Foundation? Um, I think with Kessler, it's it's kind of twofold. Number one, I love the people I work with. So you know, you come to work every day, even if even if some days you know you are more exciting than others, or some <laughs> days might just be boring. You know, you're working on a manuscript, et cetera. But if you're doing it with people you love, I think that really that that makes it a joy. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, I would say that. What makes Kessler unique is that they are so supportive of innovation and creativity. I've never brought a, an idea to Nancy Cervalotti, who is the director of my lab, or to John DeLuca, who's the vice president of research, or even to Roger, who is the CEO. I've never brought an idea to them and said, hey, you know, I kind of want to try this out. You know, what, what do you think? And have them say, nah, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> most of the time they're like, yeah, that sounds great. Give it a try. And when you're allowed that freedom to be creative, I think that's when the really awesome ideas start to flow you know, as opposed to just being told what you should study, they allow you to kind of make that determination for yourself. So that's really what what keeps me here and, and keeps me devoted. And just that we truly are improving the lives of people that we're studying. Um, I've seen so many wonderful things and advancements at Kessler where I'm like, wow, this is really going to help somebody. And uh, so, so being able to contribute to a company where you know they're making a difference, I think that that's that's huge. And I'm really feel very fortunate to be here. Well, we're very fortunate to have you, Helen. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Joan Bank Smith, the show's engineer. Stay tuned for a bonus question I got to ask Helen. For more information about Kessler Foundation, go to kesslerfoundation.org.
Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's my bonus cut. Can I ask you a question just going back to people with MS who have social cue issues? Mm-hmm. Did you say that they, you think it could be from the white matter? I, um, I don't know that I drew that link in the interview, but um, that's certainly a possibility as white matter pathology is linked to cognitive issues generally. Mm-hmm. So it is possible that that that's just another area of cognition that's affected by white matter damage. Now, would that be the holds true for those that have Asperger's or autism mm, I don't think so because MS and TBI, the way I think of it is it's something you had, but you've lost. Oh, right. Um, right. With autism, it was never there to begin. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. And that's right. why I think they don't even look the same. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's like right. almost like autism was never aware of it. And, and right. you have to make the decision. And it's funny. It used to be, well, you have to make them aware of it. Right. And I feel like society's changing. Yeah. And like, is it so important that they become aware of it? Like, maybe you just let them be who they are and work with what you have. You know, that's that's like a... That's like a very new idea is don't try to fix them because they're not broken, you know? Um, So, but whereas MS and TBI, I think you do want to fix it because they have this whole history of having had it, you know? And especially like with somebody with a brain injury who comes home from the hospital and they're just a different person. And the person and their wife is like, this is not the the guy I married. Mm -hmm. You know, if we can, like, get back some of those skills, I think that's worth it.